1: From Night nice Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris and this is Postmortem. Filmmakers are usually obscured behind the camera. It is the on-screen talent, the actors who are the name brands that drive the box office. But in the world of horror cinema, in many cases it's the filmmaker who becomes the brand name. Horror films don't require a star on the screen to become successful, but they do need a captain behind the ship to steer the audience through their on-screen nightmares. A handful of directors have earned their name brand status as their involvement increases the likelihood of a film's success. Who among us wasn't excited to see the new John Carpenter, or Toby Hooper, or Wes Craven movie? Or today, Mike Flanagan, or Jordan Peele, Ari Aster, or our guest on this episode, James Wan. Their films often are cast with excellent actors, most of whom were unfamiliar before appearing in the films by our celebrity directors. James Wan has one of the most unique careers in our genre. As a writer, a director, and a producer, he has produced in three original franchises – well close to 2 billion dollars at the box office actually by now it's probably closer to 3 but he's been able to successfully jump genres though he always seems eager to jump back into the realm of fright and fear he wears many hats and has had matchless success in spreading our genre into a mainstream world and we're happy to have him here on the slab today to talk about his past present and future and his devotion to the horror we all love for Goobble gobble, he is one of us. The Postmortem Podcast is going out not with a whimper, but a bang. Dread, Beyond Fest, and the American Cinematheque will be hosting our final show at the Historic Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and you can be there in our live audience. Many of the postmortem guests will be there on stage and in the audience on Saturday, December 9th. We'll follow the live show with a screening of Stephen King's Sleepwalkers for an unforgettable night. Tickets are available at the American Cinematech's website, so I look forward to seeing you there. And now, on with the show. James, thank you for finally finding the time in your amazing schedule.
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for uh, keeping the door open for me (laughs) towards the end of your journey on this podcast.
1: Well, you've become such an integral part of what the genre has become, and and from very uh, modest beginnings. Mm -hmm. Um, But tell me, you were born in Malaysia. You were only seven (laughs) years old when you went to Australia. So Mm -hmm. what were the things... in your childhood, was it was horror a part of your life from childhood on?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, scary stories have definitely been a big part of my childhood growing up. Um, born in Malaysia and growing up um, in, in a uh, traditional, traditionally Chinese family meant that uh, I grew up with a lot of, you know, really exciting and scary sort of superstitious stories. You know, right. culturally, we're very superstitious people. Um, so what that meant was I grew up with, you know, just a lot of interesting sort of um, stories and beliefs. And uh, and I think a lot of that shaped me and shaped my love for the horror genre. So were um, your
1: parents also part of the culture telling you these stories from your childhood?
2: Yeah, my parents, my grandparents, my aunties and uncles. Um It's just kinda who we are. We we love our ghost stories, we love supernatural things, and it's you know, it's part of the religion as well. And so, um so it was definitely a big makeup of of me during a young my young age.
1: Yeah, I remember being in Kuala Lumpur and seeing billboards for the bride with white hair and things (laughs) like that. Those movies
2: were really were they a part of your coming of age? Pretty much, yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah, I definitely grew up with um all the classic sort of Hong Kong ghost stories and the Hong Kong sort of action films as well. But uh, but I think my fondest memories... I think my first horror movie that I can put my finger on that I... So at a young age, in the theater, was Poltergeist. Oh, so, really? So Poltergeist definitely made a huge impact on me, yes. I, I, I truly believe my, my love for creepy dolls stem from <laughs> uh, that movie, and I have Toby to thank for that. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: from Dead Silence to Megan yes. and All Steps In Between and Annabelle, of course, Yep, creepy dolls have been a part of your life.
2: It's been a big part of my life. Uh, it's been a big part of my... Uh, just just my love for uh for the genre and uh, and it's been you know it's been very good for me from a uh you know from a I guess financial standpoint well
1: yeah, for sure yes. but also creatively fulfilling if, very. if your first memories are of ghost stories and here you're scaring the shit out of people <laughs> you
2: know that's right <laughs> i i'm always like you know People ask me, "Do you have a formula for how you escape People and I just say I use myself as, you know, as the gauge. I use myself as the thermometer. Um, I think I'm pretty. I'm very of the average sort of, uh, you know, I've a very sort of like everyday people mentality. I think, and so I think that helps me to kind of know. Um, what it is that makes, you know, just the general public tick and, and what scares them. And so that's what I do. I try to kind of, I try to make movies or tell stories that ultimately scares me. And yeah, if I, I feel yeah. like if it scares me, chances are, you know, hopefully there are other people out there that feels the same way. Well, fear is kind of universal in that regard. If it yeah. scares me,
1: I figure it's going to scare other people and the ones that don't, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's
2: right. Uh, I, I also feel like... Um, you know, just of course I'm joking, but <laughs> only to make a point. Yeah, I get that point, um, <laughs> but I do think the reason why there's certain themes, there's certain stories that are universal. You know, like there's a reason why haunted house movies work because we all come from families, we all grow up in a household of some kind, and and we all can relate to that, right? So I tend to enjoy scary movies that I can kind of see myself inside of that story. Yeah. And, and, and that to me is the key to making something that can connect with the general public, at least for me. I'm not saying, oh, horror movies need to be like that, but those are the kind of movies that attract me. Well, that's one of the important things
1: about your the horror side of your career is that you've drawn in a mainstream audience that is not normally part of the horror audience. There used to be a big divide between horror fans and a mainstream audience, but you yeah. have straddled that and sewn it together.
2: Yeah, I'm. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. I I do think that um, I, I I'm pretty proud of that because I remember even on even on my first movie, Saw. I I remember that. Our genre was still pretty much seen as the bastard stepchild. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, uh, the gutter know, genre. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's the it's the gutter genre. It's the um, you know, it, it it's the it's the genre that never got any respect. And I am the first to point out to anyone in our business that this is the genre that kept our business alive. Yeah. Like it, it literally when everything else was falling apart. People were still. People are still coming to the movies, to, to theaters, to watch our movies, to watch our horror films, and uh, and finally, it's really crossed over into the mainstream. And I think people like you know Jordan Peele really brought it into the mainstream in a big, big way as well. Yeah. And uh, and I do think that um, you know um, with my subsequent movies like The Conjuring, I think it really kind of crossed over into a new generation of moviegoers.
1: Absolutely, and uh, you know Insidious as well. Although right. the first one may not have had the financial success that Saw did, it spawned its own franchise, right. which reached a very big audience.
2: Yeah, and, and I do think, um, you know, I do think um, telling story in a world in an environment that people can relate to really kind of helped it. And and again, I, I give a lot of this love and credit to movie like The Poltergeist that I grew yeah. up with, which is for the first time I saw a horror film or, or, or I see a horror story that I can kind of go, oh, wow, that looks like, oh, it could be us. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I, I was... it, it wasn't like a, Big creaky old house in the woods, in the middle of like nowhere. It was just it's a, it was in the suburbs. It was something that we can kind of relate to. It's that um, whole, uh, Toby Hooper, Steven Spielberg combination, and
1: right. I was lucky enough to be on the set doing the making of, working on the making of Poltergeist. Oh, wow, and I interviewed right. Steven for that documentary. Oh my god! And uh, just watching these two masters, right, joining forces—a very strong producer and. Uh, a director who was new to studio filmmaking. Studio filmmaking, right. And watching that whole process
2: happen. Yeah, that must have been amazing. Yeah. It, it
1: was, but it also brings me to your career because you've made that big step. But let's talk how did
2: Saw first happen? You went to film school. In Melbourne, I did. I went to a media art school. It was more an art school than anything else. Like the the, the
1: RMIT. RMIT. Sorry, yeah.
2: yes, RMIT, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Um, it was where I met my buddy Lee Wanell. Yeah. Uh, we would go on to do many things together, many projects together. Uh, but that was where I met Lee, and the reason why Lee and I got along really well was we were literally <laughs> the youngest kids in our classes. <laughs> really? uh, it, it, it was a class, it was a uh, So course. you were like a teenager? We, no, we were like, uh, we were fresh out of high school. Yeah. Most of the students in our course were, you know, much older students like in their 20s or even early 30s and stuff like that. So Lee and I really were the babies of our classes. And uh, and so because of that, you know, like we had a lot of in common. We, we share a lot of um, the same love for movies and cinema. We had the same passion for wanting to Tell those kind of stories, and so we got along, and and um, our courses really gave us the opportunity to kind of um, experiment and try things that were not, you know, that were not traditionally what a film school would teach, right? Because it was an art school,
1: right? And did they hold their nose uh, when uh, <laughs> you got into the horror genre? And go, Ooh, I don't want to get that red icky stuff on me. Yeah.
2: Um, ironically, uh, our um, our professors were actually very cool. They were horror filmmakers themselves. Ah. So, uh, so yeah, so they were actually, uh, if you can kind of be snobby, but in the opposite way. So, like, they'll be snobby <laughs> against all the highbrow movies. But, like, for them, they would teach us, you know, during our classes, they'll, they'll, they'll teach us Roger Corman, wow. Toby Hooper. It, they'll really get into, like, Grindhouse cinema, and so it was really fun for us growing up.
1: So, who who were your inspirations aside from Poltergeist? What were the movies that you sought out, or the filmmakers who really
2: you looked forward to whatever they were going to do next? <sighs> um, I would say, I mean, my inspirations were pretty varied. Just again, because I, I was um, fortunately, you know, fortunately I was, um, you know, like I, 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 I got. I was introduced to filmmakers around the world, so I kind yeah. of, you I know I grew up with, um, you know, um, like I said, the Hong Kong directors, like right. the Suhawk, um, John Woo, like yeah. all, all the classics, right? That Runny people Yu now love them. Running You, yeah, Yu, yeah all, all the classics. Uh, and I mean, one of my favorite film is Kaidan, and oh, so, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so definitely I love. I'm a big fan of Japanese ghost cinema. Yeah. Um, but then I would really say that the biggest, strongest influence on me was when I hit my teen years and I discovered Italian cinema. Ah, Dario Argento. Dario is definitely my man, yeah. Ah. Dario and Mario Bava. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about people who created a palette for filmmaking tools. Yeah, I, I definitely think Dario and Mario... (laughs) (laughs) a <laughs> <Dario and Mario. laughs> gentle and bava were the two filmmakers that probably had the strongest sort of visual impact on me as a filmmaker um in, in terms of the horror genre i would say and uh and, and i definitely i'm a fan of that sort of that that baroque style of horror filmmaking yeah. that kind of really rich deep palette um, the suspirias and yeah. You know, primary colors contrasting with one another oh, yeah, and
1: yeah. A, a mobile camera sinewy moves.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yep. Definitely. Uh, I would say probably my favorite would be um, I mean, I love Profondo Rosso in, mm-hmm. in the Giallo genre, but my favorite would be A Drop of Water. Oh, yeah. Baba's A Drop of Water. Yeah, um, from
1: the segment of yeah, the, the anthology movie.
2: Yeah, from Black Sabbath, right? Yes, yes yeah, Black yeah, Sabbath. Yeah, 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 yep. Black Sunday is the Barbara yeah. Steele one. Yeah, Black Sunday is the Barbara <laughs> Steele one. That's yeah. right. Um, so I would say that sort of yeah Italian and, and eventually you know I discovered Fucci as well and and then the more obscure ones yeah um, but in terms of mainstream filmmakers, the, the the sort of more mainstream Hollywood filmmakers I definitely I grew up loving people like um like Cameron yeah. Spielberg you know yeah. Lucas it's kind of hard not to like those guys I I'm definitely of that generation I'm generation X so yeah. <laughs> these are the filmmakers I, I I grew up idolizing
1: well they created a whole new direction for cinema.
2: That's right. They, they, they created cinema in a way that you can kind of go, wow, like, this can be my will, right? They created, they, they basically, they will... will Creationist, if you will, right? Yeah, they they, yeah. they create worlds that you can just go in there, believe that will live as one of the characters, and uh, and, and just be submerged in in this in this environment. And uh, and you were born into it. You were born the year Star Wars came out. I was, yeah, <laughs> yes, seventy <laughs> seven. Yeah, Star Wars, the year, yeah, I was born. So like, I I see Star Wars as my movie, so to speak.
0: <laughs> it's your birthright. It's my birth movie. <laughs> like you know, people have birthstones. That's my birth movie.
1: <laughs> well, let's go back to. How Saw came together, and mm-hmm. there have been ten of them. Saw X, which I call Socks. <laughs> Socks, right <laughs> nice, yeah. But uh, but tell me just how it began, because it's really hard to get your first movie made, no matter who you are.
2: Yes. So you were in film school. We were in film school. So yeah. So let, let me give you a little bit of, um, of a fun story here. So Lee and I, when we graduated college, when um, university, RMIT, when we were. 20 or 21 um the first thing lee wanted to do was he wanted to go backpacking around the world and uh and he was going with two of his other buddies and uh and i was like hey man that sounds great you're going to america and they're like yeah yeah we're gonna go by hollywood and all that i was like can i tag along <laughs> so i kind of tag along on lee's trip with his buddies and uh and during that time so so we backpacked th- through the us um our first stopped was here in la wow. and um and this is how young and naive lee and i were we thought you know what we're just gonna go to hollywood and uh and we're gonna you know we're gonna go pitch them something <laughs> wow. and uh it's, at that time lee and i had worked on a little we had worked on a script we had written a script together worked on a project called the debt collector Mm. About an evil taxman A demonic taxman from hell (laughs) Who uh, who comes up to the surface To collect souls Lost souls And uh, we wrote the script I I did some drawing artwork for it and uh, and when he we came over on on our little holiday backpacking trip, we thought you know what would be cool. We had a list of uh, we wrote a list of um, producers that we admire, and we we were just gonna call them up, call, wow. Wow. call them up, and uh, we knew that no one was really gonna take our call. So what we, we were gonna do was we were gonna call up late at night uh, when no one's in the office anymore, and we're gonna leave a voicemail with a pitch on the voicemail machine. Well, it helps to have an Australian accent. <laughs> It helps to be stupid, young, and naive, I'll tell you that. That's true. So, yeah, yeah. and so we did that. We uh, we had Roger Coleman on our list, and then we had um, Brian Yasner on our list as oh. well, and, and I think Charles Band, Full Moon, was on our list. Wow, I'm a big fan of um, Full Moon, and so that's what we did. So we rang up a few places. We left um, our pitch on their answering machine like during midnight so where we knew no one would actually <laughs> pick up the phone and hang up on us, and, uh, and after we left our pitches, we didn't really hear anything about it. We gave them um, um, Lee's manager's phone number because at the time Lee was an actor. And right. so uh, so he had a manager, and agent and stuff like that. In um, Australia. In Australia. Yeah. In Australia. So we left these people Australian <laughs> contact number. <laughs> and, and we just thought, bloody hell, no one's going to ever really get back to us. What do we think we are? And so we left. We left L.A. We traveled around U.S. We backpacked to New York, backpacked to Vegas, backpacked to um, um, New Orleans and then finally, we thought, you know what? We should give um, Lee's manager a call just to see if she had anything. We called her up and she goes, boys, where have you guys been? <laughs> One of these places called us back. Wow. And it was apparently it was Brian Yasner's company that called us back. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> that story <laughs> is fantastic. So,
2: so that was like that. So if, even though that project eventually like nothing eventuated from it, but that gave Lee and I so much hope. Yeah. And believe that if we do it, if we have a cool exciting project and if we really believe in it, we can get it off, we can get it off the ground and, and get it off the ground maybe potentially in Hollywood, in America. And uh, And so when we got back to Australia, we really just, put our heads down and go, we need to come up with a cool project that everyone's going to want, that we can just pitch it to anyone in Hollywood. Um, somehow we'll get our foot through the door, pitch it to anyone, and they're going to want this script from us. And that's how Soul eventually came about. That is the most incredible
1: uh, <laughs> roundabout story <yeah>, to <laughs> So Introductory story to a career. That's fantastic. And then, So how did that all come together? Uh, was it funded by one company or... W- were their co-producers and Lionsgate picked it up, or were they involved from the beginning with right. Pete, Peter Block? I assume was the guy.
2: Yes, to and so um, it was a bit of a journey to get the movie eventually made. But but that was only because we um, we took a year to write the script because we wanted to write a really good script because we felt like no one knows who the hell we are. So our script is our secret weapon, right. and so we, we, we you know we designed a really smart script. We didn't even want it to just be a throwaway movie. Right. We want it to actually you know eventually potentially go somewhere we had <laughs> high aspirations um, high aspirations <laughs> and so we we wrote the script and then um and we spent a year writing it actually and then uh then we spent another year with um two australian producers that really loved the project and, and really believed in Lee and I and so we tried to initially get the movie off the ground in australia but we couldn't get the funding for it mm-hmm. and uh, and then um Lee's manager said you know what i know someone i know an agent at um At Paradigm or at the time, I cannot remember what company it was, um, that, that, you know, that is in TV, but he would love to read the script. And so we passed the script on. He read the script. The agent read the script and was like, wow, this is really unique and wanted Mm. to meet with Lee and myself. And, uh, And so Lee and I thought, you know what? I remember at that particular moment, I had been out of work for like. Three to five months. I had just finished my contract work at a TV station. I was just doing some small little TV job mm-hmm. at the local Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Right. And ABC. I, and I, the ABC, that's right. Not to be confused with the American Broadcasting <laughs> no. Corporation. Where I've done a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> um, but but this was TV. This wasn't like making cool movie stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, and... And so uh, so we, we, we thought, you know what? So so at that moment, I didn't really have a lot of money, but Lee and I just felt like, you know what? If we're going to spend all that money on a plane ticket to go all the way to Hollywood to meet with an agent for our script, let's let's why not try, let's shoot a scene from the script. Oh. Who knows? Because you want to be the actor and I want to be the director. Like, we don't have anything else to show for it. Let's shoot something. Right. And uh, and we, we, we shot the scene in the movie, the one the scene that was played by Sh- Shawnee Smith, in the first one where she the wore great the jaw trap, Smith,
1: yeah,
2: yeah, and so that became our calling card for the script. So we uh, we made the little short. I shot it in two days, edited it quickly, bent it onto a CD <laughs> back in the days, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and we would accompany that CD with the screenplay that would go out to a bunch of agents. That so the agent would then send it to a bunch of producers around town. Right. The importance of the agent. Yeah. Yeah. The agents. Yes. The aid, The importance of agent. His name is Ken Greenblatt, and uh, he's not an agent anymore. He, he, he's he's moved on to do other stuff. But uh, but we'll always be very thankful to him for like sending it out and believing in the project. And uh, and then the uh, the project event. The, the the script and the the CD landed at Greg Hoffman's desk. Um, and at the time, he was partnering up. He partnered up with. Um, Mark Berg and Oren Kulis at Evolution. I think it was a um, an, uh, a talent agent um, hmm. management company. Right. And uh, they, they they left the short, they left the script, and they met with Lee and I. They were literally the very first people that we met with in town. And so we came to LA. Um, the agent had set up a whole bunch of meetings that week. We met with these guys for the first meeting, and at the end of that meeting they said, We don't have a lot of money to make it. We can make it really low budget, but James, you can direct. Lee, you can act in it. Let's go do this. Wow. Yeah, and we can share. If the movie does well, we can share in the profit together. (laughs) That's... You have one amazing story after another here, James. (laughs) I I would say that was probably the biggest mistake that came out of their mouth at the time. (laughs) Not as far
1: as you were concerned. Not as far as Lee and I were
2: concerned. So we stepped out of that first meeting going, is this for real? Like, we cannot believe, because, like, in our brains, we were like, it's really hard to break into Hollywood, which, let's face it, it it freaking is, right? It really is. And you kind of need to have a lot of your, you got to be lucky and still have, you know, your ducks in a row to kind of get there. And so we we did a bunch of meetings throughout the week. Um, The, I think the other company that was really interested in it was Gold Circle, Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but Mark Berg, Aaron Coolers, and Greg Hoffman were willing to take a chance with Lee and myself right. making it. And so we went back to them and said, let's do it.
1: So did you make the film first before going out to distributors or did Lionsgate become involved we during the process? We
2: started shooting the movie first, the production of the movie first. But then very early on... Uh, Peter Block and Jason Constantine from Lionsgate um, will pull into it. I think um, they 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 have that relationship with the producers and uh, and you know and the, you know Peter Block and Jason Constantine those guys are incredible. They're, They're such, great people, such great people, such you know fans of the genre. Yeah. And uh, and when they you know read the scripts or the short and, and, and knew what we were trying to do, they loved it and uh, and they they got in. Pretty early on. So, even though we took the movie to Sundance to premiere the film, I think by then um, Lionsgate was already on board. Fantastic. A yeah.
1: great way to go to Sundance.
2: <laughs> <clears throat> with, with a potential distributor in the wing, yes.
1: yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I love hearing stories about first time filmmakers seeing their first films with their first audience. <laughs> Tell me about was that
2: Sundance? Was that, that the
1: first public screening?
2: Yes. Um, they tested the movie, which at the time I had no idea what test screenings were. Ah, uh, yeah. that, that's that's how young I was, <laughs> and I'm like, "What's Those this test screening sc- thing? It's scary. <laughs> it, it is frightening. It is scary." I was actually back in Australia at the time. Uh, I sh- I had shot the film. We, we got our visa. We came over. We shot the film, and then I, I had to go back. Uh, and then when I was back there, they, you know, that was when. I think at the time there were certain powers that be at Lionsgate that still felt the movie is like, you know, it's a cheap little low budget horror film. And uh, and they were, you know, their their DVD straight to video sort of department was exploding. Right. It was very popular in the 90s at the time (laughs) uh, or it was starting to get very big. And they felt that Soul was potentially going to be a video movie. Right.
1: Yeah. uh, Anything that doesn't cost over a couple of million bucks should go direct. Should go direct to video. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of
2: like we don't want to waste money on that. But it wasn't until they tested a movie and it tested through the roof. Wow. Yeah. Like the first testing was like in the like 80s or something, really the high 80s, and they were like, "Wait, is this for real?" Like they just couldn't believe it. Right. Uh Apparently, at the end of the movie, uh, they told me that. Towards the end of the movie, when the twist was revealed, like the audience stood up and yelled at the screen. Wow. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, that sounds incredible!" Uh. And uh, and then they, um, they're like, "Is this a fluke?" And so so then they thought, "Let's do a second test screening," and they took it out outside of L.A. that took it to Vegas, I think. Oh, yeah. And it tested even higher. Wow. And it went crazy. And it was then that Lionsgate, Lionsgate just felt, I, I think we got something here. And then there's something to really get behind it. Yeah. So yeah. tell
1: me what it felt like when you were surrounded by the audience at Sundance. At and Sundance.
2: And feel it play. Well, I can tell you this. I, um, <laughs> My memory of screening my movie to an audience for the very first time was just me and Lee pacing outside in the lobby, <laughs> back and forth, just sweating bullets. Oh, we God. were so
1: nervous. So you didn't want to sit with the audience uh, as it played. You wanted we to. Would, listen? We
2: would pop in every now and then. Yeah. To just kind of check out. We, we you know, we would come in for like moments that we knew would be kind of fun to watch. Yeah. But I couldn't sit through the whole film with the audience. I was <laughs> so wracking. nervous. Yeah. Just because, like, I felt the film. You know, like it was a low-budget movie. I, I this vision in my head for the movie that ultimately I didn't really feel I got I and mean, I felt like I had this bigger film in my head in my head I was shooting a hitchcock movie right right, right? but but I ended up shooting like this you know $7000 movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which was the budget we had to shoot the film with
1: and it um, went on to make $50 million <laughs>
2: in just in the US yeah just the theatrically US yeah. for the first one yeah yeah
1: so that opened doors to you and Lee as writers you as a director um
2: and so it was time for a creepy doll movie right uh one of the things I remember reading about Steven Spielberg saying um he picked his next movies kind of based on how he felt on his last film you know like if he made a lot of like I know after Jaws, he, he he had a lot of practical effects, and and the shark wasn't quite working, right? So that's why the right. next one he wanted more control in the effects department. That's why he went and did um, Close Encounter. Right. And uh, and I was, yeah, not so many effects in no, that. right? Well, but but they were effects that he could control easier, exactly. right? They were more VFX instead right. of like mechanical sharks that did not want to work. Yeah. That you put in water, and why would they ever work? Yeah, in water? why would it, yeah, yeah yeah salt water <laughs> apparently is bad. Um, but but after Saw, you know, Lee and I kind of got the reputation for being, you know, like the gory trap guys. And, and I felt like, uh, I don't know if that's the representation I wanted Torture of Torture porn was Torture a big deal at that time exploded, with hostile, and, host- Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I blame Eli for that. No. (laughs) Entirely your fault, Eli. (laughs) Yeah, Eli. Um, No, uh, we, uh, listen, I I look back to that period now, the the Splat Pack, as we were called. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of, you know, know, hindsight, you know, with uh, a lot of love. Yeah, you wear it with pride. I wear it with pride now, yeah. (laughs) Back then I was like, oh, I'm not sure if this is what I want to be known, but now I'm like, yeah, that was fucking cool back then yeah um, but but after saw I felt like I want to do something kind of more moody more uh more about more atmospheric and uh that's why we went back to a ventriloquist horror film yeah, yeah. And- uh, up, up to went to a proper ventriloquist horror film
1: And you had a little more money this time. You had a little, but not as much control. Or were you still working
2: independently? So, *Dead Silence* uh, Silence was my first, uh, our first studio film. Yeah. And uh, and let's just say there was a lot of learning curve.
1: Mm, (laughs) A lot of compromises.
2: Well, just you know, like all those horror horror stories you hear about, you know, um, an indie filmmaker that had an indie hit that will go on to do. A studio film and how tough it was a transition for them right um so i i learn a lot i i learned a lot of the process just the politics behind it all and kind of what you need to do to kind of um you know to, to make the film that you ultimately want to make and you know what i learned ultimately from that is you you know as a director you live and die by the movie that you put out. Yeah, people are not going to know about all the brouhaha behind the scene. What you put out is the movie that you are going to be known for. Right. And so, uh, so I learned to fight for my films now. Yeah, yeah. So I learned and you pick to do, your battles as well. You pick your battles. That's yeah. right. You, you know, you let certain things go, and then and, and other things you just go, no, this is how we should do it.
1: Now, it was not a huge success that spawned a, a series of movies like <laughs> Things to Come. But your next one was uh, Death Sentence, which was a sequel to Death Wish
2: by Brian Garfield. Yeah, in the books, right? The books, yeah, 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 in the book world. Um, yeah, I think uh, after Dead Silence, I wanted to branch a little bit outside of the. You know, "quote unquote" horror genre, so to speak. Yeah, this is um, more of an
1: action thriller. It's
2: an action. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Of, big fan of revenge thrillers. Yeah. and I just thought, you know, this might be fun for me to do something a little bit on the outskirts. But you know, to me, Death Sentence still played like a horror film right. in a lot of ways. You know, it, well, but it's the more cat and
1: mouse and tension and suspense and build right, and release. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, and so that was cool. Yeah, to play more into the suspense and into like, you know, the everyday sort of um, potential human horror of it all. Um, you know, digging into the darker side of humanity, if you will. Um, thematically, that was a fun one for me to, to dive into. And the, the best thing about that movie was getting the chance to work with those actors for me. Yeah. Kevin Bacon, John Goodman, Garrett Hedlund. Fantastic. Um, Yeah. Garrett Hedlund was in Unbroken, (laughs) which I produced. That's right. Yes. I remember Garrett telling me about that years later. Yeah. Great actor. He's such a, yeah, he's a good dude. I love Garrett. Really good. Yeah.
1: Now then you spent some time working with Toby Hooper developing uh, a Texas (laughs) Chainsaw (laughs) version. I did. So tell me about that process because Toby was one of my favorite people, dear, dear friend, and just a teddy bear.
2: Yeah. You know, you want to hug him when he... Right, yes. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I love... One of my favorite things about talking to people about Topi is just like, how much of a gentleman he is. He truly is. I always tell people this, that, that are not familiar with our world, that the whole the horror crowd are the nicest people you meet. Absolutely. The most down-to-earth, normal, very well-adjusted, fun <laughs> people you meet. You know, uh, they're quite different comedians. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's for sure. You know, but yeah. those dinners we've had, yeah. you know, everybody is... So supportive of each yeah. other, and they yeah. want everybody to succeed. There's not this cutthroat competition like, if you win, I lose.
2: You know? Right. make You know why I think that is? I do think a lot of that had to do with, like, we are the black sheep of yes. the business. and uh, And even though we are very big in the mainstream world today— I still very much have that underdog mentality. Yeah. Like e- even as successful as, you know, like my franchises have become, I don't see myself like that. I really don't. I still see like I have a lot to prove still. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it, it's a great feeling. And I think if you don't
1: feel that way, you're a hack. You you calcify, you don't grow, you yeah. don't evolve with the That's world right. of film. You
2: know? Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that mindset. Yeah. Like um, I feel like a little bit of that feeling of being on edge uh, helps keep you a better filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It keeps you wanting to fight to do something more, something better.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you always want to do something better than what you've done before, mm-hmm. you know. So tell me more about working with Toby and whatever
2: happened to the Chainsaw Project. So this this was during the period after, um, um, between Death Sentence and Insidious, right. and uh, where I kind of like... I kind of like, it was that period where I kind of like took a bit of time off to kind of like, you know, assess with what I want to do and, and just kind of like, just put the brakes on a little because I felt like, um, you had three really different experiences. Different experiences, yeah. And it was exhausting. And I just wanted to kind of uh, take take the time to just sleep in, <laughs> just chill, hang out with my dog. I got a puppy during that time period. Not and, have a call time. Yeah, and exactly. Not and to wake up like, what, five or six in the morning. Um, and during that period, I was trying to, you know, I was like, I was approached for, I was still getting approached for a lot of. You know, for a lot of horror projects, um, a lot of remakes and reboots. um, Real, so really, there were only two projects, or two or three projects, in terms of remakes or reboots that I was interested in. In terms of established IPs, Um, one was The Blob. Uh Uh, I think after, um, I think that was after um, Rob Zombie was attached to it. Oh, really? They they came to me. And uh, I was, you know, kind of like, um, kind of flirting with that for like two seconds. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Texas, then Texas Chainsaw came up, and I thought, oh, I wonder if there's something cool I could do with this. And uh, I, I kind of joked that, well, people already know me as the Saw guy. Maybe I can put the chain in front of the <laughs> saw and be also partially known as the chainsaw guy. Um, but, but I didn't really want to necessarily commit to it until I had met Toby right. and, uh, and, and had gotten his blessing.
1: Yeah yeah so but what a sweet generous guy.
2: Yes. and so yeah, I remember like um, with the producer um, hanging out with, um, with Toby and, uh, and Steve Susco. At the time as well. Oh, was he attached as the writer? Yeah. 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 That was a while. Yeah. It was a while ago. Yeah. I I love Steve as well. And uh, and so I think this was this was during that, that that soul grudge period. Right. That was, you know, that was very popular. And so we were like the idea of like collaborating together was kind of fun. And uh, and yeah we we met up with Toby and I love it. And I already met obviously Toby previously from the Masters of Horror dinners yeah, and yeah. it was just cool to just catch up with Toby and just kind of pick his brains and just hear what he had to say. He was just he was awesome about everything. God, do I miss him. I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I bet. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, you went back to horror with Insidious following that mm-hmm. and, and uh, so that didn't work out. It just fell apart like so many things that in Hollywood do.
0: Yeah, it
2: just sort of petered away. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but then during that period, um, I, I was like, oh, you know what? I, Lee and I kind of came back together. Yeah. We're like, you know what we should do? We love ghost stories. So why don't we go and tell a cool modern ghost story, a a classic haunted house story, but you're a poltergeist. Literally. That's that's basically like, Lee, how do I make my own poltergeist? (laughs) (laughs) My version of poltergeist set in the burbs. Yeah. Uh, Find my Craig T. Nelson in, uh, <laughs> in, Patrick, in Patrick Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what we did. We set out to make our own haunted house movie with a twist to it. and uh, and But the goal was to make it really low budget, really cheap. That So way we you can, had control. So that we would, yeah, retain queer control. And really my mindset during that period of my fourth movie after death sentence was I just wanted to have fun again. Yeah. yeah, I want to go back and have fun again and make movies with my mates that I grew up with and uh, and just kind of make a film like how I, I used to do them back hmm. in film school, back in my college days. I uh, And so I bought the fastest computer at the time and invested in a computer because I, I edited the movie myself. Yeah. I colored the movie myself. I knew, so I wanted to do all this stuff. On my own. Wow. Yeah. And so, so I go, Lee. Let's you and I write, and and, and, and you act in it. I'll direct it again, and uh, and we'll get our buddies to star in it, and we'll find a few other, you know, potential really great character actors to kind of like populate this world. And that's what we did. That's why I reached out to Lynn, Lynn Shay. Yeah, we love. Uh, Lin. We love Lynn, and uh, and so it truly was just like getting all my friends to play the ghouls and ghosts in the world. <laughs>
1: And you're an artist as well. Do you
2: storyboard stuff? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I, I draw. Um, I draw a bit. Uh, they're definitely much better artists now that I work with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that you can afford, <laughs> but, but I, yeah, that I can afford to get them to do it for me now. But uh, but no, yeah, if I have to, I'll draw it myself. Hmm. Um, I would point out that uh, that the um, Dalton in Insidious, oh, his little. Child drawing in the, in the movie that that was all me. Excellent, yeah, that's great. One
1: of the things I like to do when I'm doing something a child writes or something is use my left hand. That's exactly what I
2: did, really? Meg. That's really? exactly what I did. Yes, I had to use. See, I'm left-handed, so I have to use oh, my okay. right hand. So
1: you would do the other hand. Yeah, I'll do, do my the the other hand. Yeah,
2: that's so funny. But the, the hardest part, the hardest part is as you draw, like you're trying to draw, is because. Even, even though my hand doesn't have that much control, but I'm thinking like an adult. Right. And so the mindset, when you're a child, you draw things very different yes. to how you see things. And so as I'm drawing it, I'm like, I'm going, no. Even though the drawing is very crooked, yeah. <laughs> it, there's not a lot of strength to it's it. It's still but, sophisticated. but it's Yeah, exactly. There's too much of a s- sophisticated thinking behind the drawing so that was that was a lot harder than it looked
1: (laughs) yeah that's great well then after insidious i mean the conjuring insidious was not a big box office hit but later spawned a couple Uh of sequels Mm -hmm. um but the conjuring was huge and it launched two franchises the Annabelle franchise and the nun franchise
2: yeah within the conjuring franchise within yeah. the conjuring <laughs> world like, yeah yeah spaceship within the mothership as they <laughs> call them yeah. um the pods <laughs> uh I, I would say a I've known about the Warrens for a long time as we tend to you know if we if any one of us who are you know remotely into the supernatural and ghost hunting and all that at some point in our life we would have heard about the Warrens
1: absolutely um
2: yeah. And then but the other thing ultimate that ultimately that pushed me to do the conjuring was I remember having a meeting with um, Don Murphy. Do you know Oh, Don? Yeah. yeah. I did know Don. Don yeah. Murphy yeah. of Angry Films. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I I like Don, you know, like he's he's a really kind of cool, nerdy guy with a lot of kind of cool ideas and tastes. And this was back then, um, Back then, you know, like, uh, I, so I met up with him one just a general meeting, because, um, you know, we, we share similar love and t- taste for things. And this was right after Insidious um, had opened. And, and, um, and he said, James, Insidious is great. But what you need to do now is you need to do an Insidious, but for the studio. Right. If you want to move back into the studio world of filmmaking and you want to go where I think you want to go with your career... And to reach a large audience. Reach a larger, yeah, a bigger, more mainstream audience, you got to do Insidious, but at that studio level. And those words, he he said it very fleetingly, he just threw it out, but those words really stuck with me. Mm. And, uh, and you know, the more as I, after Insidious I was trying to find out what I want to do next, it felt to me that um, doing insidious but a more grounded version of insidious based on a true life story was right. the way to go right and uh, and then that was how i eventually met up with peter saffron and, and the and the, the guys you know the, the group at line at, uh, not lines get the group at new line and uh and that's how and so new get.
1: line was part of warner brothers so you had a much wider potential audience then. right yeah Now, with Insidious and with The Conjuring, you did parts one and two. (laughs) What did it feel like to hand it off to other
2: filmmakers? It's a bit bittersweet, uh, you know, just uh, because I I felt the same thing as well with Soul. Um, You know, you created this world. You create this world and, and the characters, and I do love them. But my thing is, I just felt like I've told all the stories I wanted to tell hmm. as a f- director, um, not necessarily, not necessarily as a writer or producer, because I used to have more stories. But as you know, directing is so consuming; it's just, it's exhausting, and it's every waking moment. It's every waking moment, yeah. It just eats up every part of your life, and uh, and you know, having done one and two, I felt like I've already i you know, like I felt like I've I've really established the world and I felt like I'm ready to pass it on to someone else.
1: Right,
2: pass the baton. Pass yeah. the baton, yeah, right. if you will. And um you know, and I felt like um the world is established strong enough that people kinda if people to come on to to play with us, you know, I'll let them make the movie that they wanted to make, but at least the framework is in place and and if they branch too far outside of that framework i can i can kind of say let's keep it within this world that we've created that doesn't feel like the conjuring world or the insidious world right Um, so as
1: a producer were you
2: watching from afar
1: or were you steven spielberg on poltergeist
2: (laughs) (laughs) i was definitely more uh just you know like Helping out with developing the script and right. the stories and the scares ultimately, yeah, and uh, and then um, you know and then letting the director um, kind of you know bring their vision to life, uh, and and, and also too, I, I was still I still had my day job as a director as well, so I'm I'm off like either directing you know, um, Aquaman or Fast and Furious Seven, yeah, <laughs> well, so I still had other things,
1: yeah, and and. You know, a filmmaker is an artist as well as a technician. So yeah. there are the realities you have to work with and mm-hmm. the technical aspects of it that are so important. And so much of creating scares is technical, in addition to being creative, especially if you want to do it in a way that has not been done over and over and over and have right. a cat jump out of a right. trash can. You yeah. know. Um, so tell me about how you go about that creation Because you're famous for your developing of scare scenes in movies.
2: Yeah, I get really offended when people just dismisses scares or jump scares, right? Yeah. Um, I agree that cheap jump scares are cheap and easy to do, but good ones are really hard to pull off. Absolutely. And to be successful, like people don't understand that. Like it takes so much understanding of the genre of film crafting and ultimately of psychology right as so often I, as I'm designing my scares I'm trying to look at it as an audience sitting in a dark room disconnected from what I'm seeing and go how would I react to that if that was me just watching someone else's film right right and so I try to look at it from that mindset and go okay I've seen tons of scares I, I know and today's audiences are so you know, have been exposed to so many things that they're they're pretty jaded. They've seen it all, and so they come how do to I,
1: expect the here comes somebody says something funny? That's right. Something scary that's right. Even
2: if they don't know it, like technically, but it's so kind of like it's so ingrained in them that even if they don't understand it, they can feel like a scare is coming. Right, like they 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 know the tricks, like they can kind of feel like the rhythm Mm -hmm. that a scare has, and for me, it's all about breaking these these rhythm that you have in uh in these moments, and so it's hard to come up with jump scares or scares a build up to a scare that you build up on that tension and then you release that tension. Um, it definitely is not something that uh that, that 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 I just. It's not something
1: that one can just do lightly. And it's not automatic. I mean, John Carpenter once told me I can make an audience jump by just running black leader through a projector, hit a white right. frame, and a loud noise, and it'll right. make them jump. But are they going to remember it on their
2: way home? Right. You know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's not. You're not scaring them to the soul. It's just a visceral. Thing. It's startling them. It's not startling. Scaring. That's right. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. So. Yeah. Along comes a total change of pace, (laughs) Furious 7, a giant franchise, huge scale. Um, This is a studio movie in the truest sense of the word. It's the seventh episode of a franchise of (laughs) very expensive, high-grossing films. Right. So tell me about how you got that and then how you approached it
2: i I know it's probably the strangest one on my resume if you look at my m d. b it's definitely the one that pops out it's like unbroken on mine <laughs> <laughs> yes um I, you know it, it, it's a strange one but but people that know me know that i'm a you know as much as I love the low budget filmmaking. And I have that low-budget filmmaking mentality. I also have a love for big-budget filmmaking as well. I I love big-budget movies. Hollywood movies. Hollywood movies, yeah. Yeah. All the stuff that we grew up with. And um, I've always, you know, when I was younger, aspired to want to make those kind of movies. I'm a big action fan, a big Mm. action junkie. And for me, you know, crossing into action, you know, it wasn't hard at all for me because to me, like... Designing my action set pieces Is akin to me designing my horror set pieces You just have to kind of look at it With different hats on Mm -hmm. But it's still about creating tension within them Suspense And and I like to tell um, stories within my scares Or within my action set pieces I like to tell um, an opening A middle and an end Mm -hmm. Within those little moments And so I apply the same kind of methodology To a slightly different genre
1: Well, you're also staging these things on a much grander scale. Right. So shooting stunt sequences, especially with cars, is the most difficult kind of filmmaking there is, it seems to me.
2: Yes, in in the practical effects world, yes. Um, you know, n- now that more and more movies are made with visual effects, you know, created in computers, right. you know, it, it was fun to make a film, you know, to be part of a film series like The Fast and Furious that actually still, you know, relies on a lot of practical effects, right? Like crashing cars and right. stunts
1: and explosion. And you can't do those things over and over and over either. No,
2: yeah, you got to plan them well. You got to design them well. You got to have an incredible team behind you to kind of you know from from your stun department to your second unit like everyone needs to be on board and uh, and the cool thing the great thing about something like furious 7 is i pretty much have like the best of the best to work with yeah and yeah. uh and so for me the opportunity to work with big toys was really <laughs> fun <laughs> <laughs> well you had more of it to come but with more visual effects with
1: aquaman yeah so this was your first superhero movie and that is a genre unto itself yeah and this was yeah. dc not marvel so it right. had a totally different approach from what right. the marvel approach was so what were
2: the marching orders on that it was i mean it, the the good thing was you know the fact that dc is a part of Warner Brothers. Right. And and I've already kind of really established my place at Warner Brothers with, with the Conjuring universe. Mm. And, uh, and and just like, they, they feel like, you know, I feel like I know them well and they knew me well. And so for the first Aquaman, they really trusted me to just kind of go out there and make the movie I wanted to make. Well, you have kind of proven yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at that point, I, I was kind of coming off Conjuring 2 and Fast and Furious 7. So yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely that was, you know, they they trusted me there and uh, and I think they liked my vision for it, which was I wanted to um, just kind of make a fun superhero movie that really lean into um, the Silver Age of Aquaman of the comic right. book.
1: And were you a fan of Aquaman comics
2: before you became involved? I I was a fan in in yeah I was fan like I, I never collected all of it, but I I, I would read like now every and in then. Um, just because I do love the world, but obviously. Once I was a part of the film, I did a a really deep dive into that wall. No pun intended, but I definitely, (laughs) that's... It's hard to stay away from puns, uh, yes. and Yeah, working Aquaman, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah,
1: and and I love the conceptual uh, conceptualization of Aquaman in the film, so different from the blonde, uh, right? You know, superhero of the comic right. books of the '60s. Yes,
2: know? yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that is definitely credit to uh, Zach for casting uh, Momoa, and uh, yeah. and so once I met Jason in the first film, you know, like you see who he is, so it made it easy to write the movie. You're like, I'm just gonna write it to this guy. Guy. Yeah, he's just a, a man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, yeah, exactly. Just kind of lean and just embrace Jason's larger than life personality. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's great. Yeah. So,
1: so it's a big success. But you came home. <laughs> you came home with malignant. So yes. tell me about that. Was that you really you'd done these two giant franchise movies? One that hopefully was the beginning of a franchise, but was part of the DC franchise, right? And malignant comes along and it's like a return to
2: your roots yeah i i have found that i really enjoy going back and forth yeah i don't like just doing one thing for too long Mm -hmm. um you know like when i went from insidious to the conjuring and then insidious two again i felt like oh my god i'm haunted house out (laughs) (laughs) and i need to take a break and so when Fast and Furious Seven came along; it was a great change of pace for me because it allowed me to exercise a different muscle in my brain. Right, and so uh, I really like that. I really appreciate being fortunate enough to have the luxury to be able to go back and forth. Yeah, and so when I do a big film, the last thing I want is to do another next big movie. Right, so I want to go back to my roots, and, and and you know, do do something smaller, do something more practical. That that's. That's my thing is uh you know after so much visual effects i'm like oh i'm sick of it i want to go back to do more hands-on I it's want- on the stage it's on the stage yeah. yeah i want to work with animatronics puppets you know like prosthetics you know yeah. like the, the blood and all the fun stuff that i don't get to do on the other kind of and films. you got
1: some of your best reviews ever on malignant
2: too <laughs> yeah who would have thought
1: <laughs> but it's right. did you see miike's masters of horror imprint it also had the head in hand thing. It yeah, 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 that's right, yeah.
2: yes. I know. It's, it's, I, I just wanted to kind of go back to like, um, you know, just like a lot of like the 80s sort of video movies I grew yeah. up with. Yeah, yeah. Like, I would reference that Um, Malignant to me is like the kind of movie that you would find at the back of the video store. In the horror section. Right. That, that sometimes maybe they couldn't off. <laughs> right. Yeah. 17 and all, uh, above only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, and you have to really search for it to find it. That was kind of the spirit yeah. uh, of something I want to do. But I, obviously, I want to do a more sort of elevated version of that. Right. Um, you know, do it with, like, you know, all the technical know how and, and everything that I've learned, you know, from you know, since, since then. So,
1: well, your production company, Atomic Monster, you're developing movies, making movies, making TV shows and developing things like Uh that. So tell me about the business side
2: of James Wan. Right. Well, it's really interesting. It's, it's really funny. I mean, like, I hope people believe me when I say this. Um, I, the things, the projects I pick, are never based around money. I I don't do something for the sake of like, hey, this thing is gonna make money. That'll right. be great. I literally everything I do has to be something that, I, that I'm passionate about. You know, if I if I'm not passionate about wanting to direct it, but if I still like the story, or if I believe in that filmmaker, I want to support that filmmaker. Right. I I really do feel very fortunate that Greg Hoffman. Mark Berg, Orin Coolers, very early on in my career, gave Lee and I the opportunity to direct. Like, there's no reason for them to believe in us, but they did, and they put their own money into it. So, like, not only did they take a chance with us, they put their own money into it, and it's obviously it's paid off big time for them. Big time,
1: yeah. Yeah. And and
2: I'm very thankful for that. So, like, because hopefully, what that does is encourage other, you know, investors and producers to potentially do the same for other filmmakers. So now. I like to think that I, I'm now in the position where I can kind of pay it back. Yeah. And so I like to kind of give, you know, like upcoming filmmakers the opportunity that they may or may not have otherwise. So you can be a cheerleader. Y- yes. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Be, be a supporter and be, be their producer. And, uh, and listen, I mean, obviously, I need these movies to work to be successful so that we can do sure. more. And you've got the experience to be able to be a a great
1: resource for these young filmmakers.
2: Yeah. Yeah, basically, I'm like, you guys, use me as much as you want to use me. God, I'm happy to help you however want you want to help me. Like, there's no ego on my part. It's still your movie. You go make the movie that you want to make. But whatever you want me to help you out with, I will do my best to help you out.
1: And now the holidays are coming up, so it's time for your new Aquaman movie, which is coming out very shortly Uh as we sit here talking now. Yes. So tell me about going back to that big underwater world of Aquaman and returning to that
2: giant production. It's daunting. I mean, like, you know, just kind of like, you know, when you go back to a smaller movie, you really feel the pressure lifted off you, right? You can really see the difference. And then when you go back to this, you know, the first movie made over a billion dollars. And so, like, you're... (sighs) You know, like, you're like, how the heck am I going to live up to it? But, you know, I I, I love the people I worked with. I love the world and the chances to sort of expand on the first movie. All I can do is just, you know, go out there and make the movie I wanted to make. And whatever happens, happens. And you have
1: so much more time and so many more resources. If you have an idea that's outrageous,
2: you can fulfill it. Yes. And believe me, this one is not afraid to be outrageous.
1: (laughs) Well, also then, back to your producer role, you've got Night Swim coming, coming out, out as well. Yes. Tell me about that. I only know the title.
2: Yeah, Night Swim, when um, um, Bryce McGuire c- came to us and pitched us this haunted swimming pool idea, I was like, say no more. I get it. <laughs> but is there a creepy doll in it? <laughs> <laughs> There's no creepy doll. <laughs> yeah. There's a toy in it, but it's not a creepy toy. <laughs> um, but I was like, again, what drew me to that was like, see, I get this because... It is something so domesticated. It's something that we are so familiar with that you know that most people have swimming pools these days in their homes, and uh, and we can see the kind of horror that is potentially you know the kind of move the scarce that could be built around something like that. So, I you know I I, I, re- and I and I and he made a little short that uh that he went that you know a while back, and so I saw the short. I go, I know the movie that I think you're gonna make. Yeah, which yeah. Is so. Great. I always tell um, upcoming filmmakers, don't be afraid to go and shoot a short because they're now, you know, we now live in a world where, you know, like YouTube, TikTok, where like we're willing, you know, the studio and financiers, the money people are willing to take chances on you if you go and do something that can be effective in a short amount of time.
1: Well, you've done so many things as a writer, as a producer, director. You've done what people call torture porn. You've done creepy dolls. You've done haunted houses. You've done superheroes. You've done car crashes, (laughs) all of that. What have you not done yet that you're dying to do?
2: That's a really, really good question. Um, I think I let... The cat out of the bag a while ago, uh, when I was promoting. I think Megan, Megan, I yeah. uh, on a Reddit promo thing. I said that um, I have been David Leslie Johnson, who's um, the screenwriter. I don't know if you know David. like no. he, he wrote um, *Off*, often, and he. Did, oh, I um, sure know him, but yeah, his you know, work. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, you know He did *Offen* and he did *Conjuring* for me. *Conjuring* two and three for me, and um, he's writing *Conjuring* four right now. Um, we have been secretly uh, working for the last two years on our own adaptation of Call of Cthulhu.
1: Wow. So you're getting into the world of Lovecraft.
2: I would love to. Whether or not it will actually happen, I don't know, but we've just been kind of secretly adapting it ourselves for no one. Well, what a
1: great place to wrap up. (laughs) This is great. James, I can't tell you how much I
2: appreciate you joining us here, especially face-to-face. Make Thank you so much for doing this. I've been wanting to do this for a while, and thank you for not giving up on me.
1: Never. <laughs> James, thanks so
2: much. And good luck with the two movies. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck with whatever you do next. I'm, always, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, Mick, so I'm very happy to be here, and I want to see what you do next as well. Thanks.
1: Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.